No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. In celebration of Pride, this June we teamed up with Lambda Literary for a special night of queer storytelling with a twist. First up from our Snapped show, what begins as a simple cab ride to the airport becomes a shifting contest of power, imagination, and identity in Naomi Gordon Lobel's Can I See It? Read for us here by Kent D. Wolf, directed by Mike Dressel, who is also our host for the evening. This evening, we can do a little yes. Q&A with the author. We are going to do a little Q&A. Um, and I thought, though, I wanted to sort of eschew the typical Q&A thing. So um, if this doesn't work, I'll go back to that. So <laughs> no pressure. But I thought, uh, I was looking through the LGBTQ plus archives in Canada, and they have all of these weird board, gay board games from the 70s and 80s. So I thought I would give you a title of one of those board games, and you tell me how you think that game is played. <laughs> so we're going to get to know you. So your game is called Fantasy Weekend Key West. <laughs> how do you win this game? How do you play Fantasy Weekend in Key West? Okay. Everybody goes to Key West when playing the game. Sounds good, yeah. There are a lot of cocktails that have those names uh, <laughs> on the house menu. Manhattan, Cynthia Dixon. Um, whoever sleeps the least during the weekend wins. Yeah, no, that's pretty close, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty close. The description is that players move around the Key West board going tea dances and bars <laughs> while drawing, quote, encounter cards and, quote, experience cards. <laughs> Don't get a sunburn and lose your turn. <laughs> that was pretty close. I just didn't get explicit about that part. <laughs> well, that's how you've got to win or lose. Um, all right, so we're going to hear your story now. So you can have a seat. And we are now going to hear, can I see it? Written by Naomi Gordon Lobel and performed by Kent D. Wolf. <laughs> Can I see it? The taxi picked me up in my parents' house in Brooklyn. It's easy for me to remember that it was summer. I was wearing my favorite shirt, a black tee with cut-off sleeves and a red and white logo on the front. It stuck to my stomach in the heat. The cab's lowered windows not enough to stop the sweat from appearing in long, narrow lines across the faded black cotton. I was headed to the airport on my way back to Michigan for my senior year of college in Ann Arbor, back to the Midwest with its Greek column fraternity houses and its drunken students puking on football Saturdays, back to my girlfriend, a woman I'd been dating since freshman year who I knew would be waiting at the airport to take me for frozen yogurt at her favorite spot. Okay if I take Flatbush to Tillery? The cab driver asked as we drove down 3rd Avenue. Lots of traffic on the BQE over there. Yeah, definitely, I said, appreciating his logic. 
and then after a pause, how long have you been driving a cab? Thirteen years, he said. Feels even longer. We chatted as we drove down Flatbush Avenue, frequent red lights doing a number on my stomach. My father had driven a yellow cab for many years before I was born, and I often mentioned this to taxi drivers, and what I told myself was not an attempt to equate our lives, but rather an opening for conversation. I always talked to the driver during cab rides, and seemed rude not to, given that we were two humans traveling along together in a small physical space. <clears throat> and besides, my father always did. As we turned onto Tillery Street, the sounds of trucks filtered in through the window, the heavy metal clank of the undercarriages and blaring horns drowning out our conversation. What, I asked, leaning towards the small gap in the plexiglass divider that the driver's voice was filtering through, having missed the last thing he said. You wanna come up front? He asked, uh, easier to hear. Sure, I said, and at the next light, without a thought, I hopped out of the back seat of the cab and into the front. Front seats are always more comfortable, but by definition, more intimate. You're suddenly parallel with another body, both of you exposed, laid open, and in close proximity to each other. Your torso, their torso, your arms, their arms, your lap, their lap. <clears throat> the driver was much older than me, in his 60s, <coughs> I guessed which would have made him three times my age, with a beard and large wrinkled hands that held the steering wheel in the relaxed, unconcerned way of a person who holds the steering wheel regularly. As we eased onto the BQE, he asked me if I had a girlfriend. This is probably a good moment for me to pause and tell you that I'm a genderqueer person who often gets read as a very young cisgender man. And I should also tell you that when that happens, I can always tell. The signs vary. Sometimes it's, ex it's as explicit as someone calling me young man, sir, <laughs> boss. Sometimes it's much more subtle, a particular kind of nod, a question that betrays a set of assumptions. No matter what, I've been having the experience long enough, as in my whole life, that I can always tell when it's happening. As we headed northeast on the BQE toward LaGuardia, me and the older driver, our bodies parallel in the front seat, it became clear to me that he thought I was a young teenage boy. The funny thing about assuming people assuming I'm male is that they accidentally get things right. I did indeed have a girlfriend. <laughs> he probably didn't have the picture quite right. <laughs> I doubted he was imagining our active participation in the queer women's club at school, the rainbow paraphernalia around both of our apartments. But it was straightforward enough question with a straightforward enough answer. Yeah, I do, I told him. Nice, he said. <laughs> <laughs> then, then he offered, I, I have a wife, but also a girlfriend, too. <laughs> uh-huh, I mumbled, giving what I hoped was the absolute minimal verbal acknowledgement of what he'd said. Enough to not offend him, but not enough to encourage him in any way to continue down the road he was embarking on. This, after all, was a subset of my experience being read as male that I was familiar with. A kind of brazenly shitty treatment of women that men, assuming that they were alone and unobserved, felt comfortable sharing. An unabashed misogyny that managed to be even more shocking than the standard misogyny. 
I regularly witnessed this in mixed company. I now understood that I was in the front seat for some locker room talk, and I was <laughs> totally uninterested. <laughs> we rode in silence for a while. We were in Williamsburg now, and the neighborhood's old tenement buildings, hung with fire escapes and tattooed with faded graffiti, passed by my window as we drove. Not nearly fast enough, I thought. LaGuardia was still 15 minutes away, if we were lucky. Then he said, sometimes I even have customers. They like me to pick them up. I looked over at him. He gestured in the center console of the car in the space between us, like he was cupping something in his hand. An apple, baseball, a bag of peanuts. <laughs> you interested? He asked. No way, man, I said emphatically, setting my jaw and looking straight ahead at the Cusco Bridge, the traffic crawling across it. Nah. Time is a strange instructor, both illuminating and further obscuring. <coughs> How would I react now if a man three times my age asked if he could grab my cock in the front seat of a cab? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to say. Today, <laughs> today, 10 years later, I would never have climbed in the front seat of the car in the first place. Then, I was 21. Worried too much about hurting strangers' feelings and not enough about my own. Flattered by the validation of my masculinity and my ability to pass, and too naive to realize that such validation didn't have to come with the price tag of risk. Willing to play with many fires that I wouldn't recognize as fires until years later. Both scared and not scared enough. More silence, and then he asked, can I see it? Nah, man. <laughs> Every time I had to say no, my comfort saying it grew. I was playing a part, I realized. Not just a young cis dude, but a straight one. A slightly homophobic one, even. I was slowly realizing that to this cab driver, I was one of those boys who played volleyball with their shirts off in the front yard of the returning on South State Street. Their hairless chests gleaming in the spring afternoon sun. How would one of those boys say no? You want to see mine, he asked, persistent. I could pull over. <laughs> no, I said simply, allowing myself to end the sentence there for the, perhaps the first time in my life. Is it big? He asked. I looked down at my own body in the front seat of the cab, my black t-shirt damp with sweat, my small hands, the fly of my jeans, the denim's natural thickness curving over my crotch. Beneath the fly, I knew, were my boxers, blue plaid probably, or maybe pinstripe. And beneath that was me, my skin, the body I'd lived in for 21 years and knew intimately. There was no penis. But I saw me, too, the way he saw me. I looked at the very same fly in my jeans the way he must have been looking, glancing over periodically at his passenger's lap as he guided the taxi along the BQE. I saw the curve of the denim as revealing something more. I saw what he must have imagined, a cock, thick and heavy, resting just feet away from him under several layers of clothing and a veneer of heterosexuality. It was a profoundly surreal thing to be sitting next to someone, knowing that they are seeing a part of your body that does not exist, knowing that they are hungering for a part of you they've imagined into reality, that it has not even occurred to them that the object of their desire exists in their mind only, and 
not in physical space. In some ways, it is the closest I've ever felt to having a penis. His question hung between us. Was it big? I answered truthfully. I've never had any complaints. <laughs> <laughs> again. No, I said again, and looked out the window. We rode the rest of the way to LaGuardia without talking. At the airport, I paid him cash and took my luggage from his hands. He avoided eye contact. How do you even understand the power dynamics of what had transpired between us? Once safely on the sidewalk outside of the Delta Terminal, the reality of the situation was so slowly settling into my consciousness. Just moments earlier, I'd been a queer woman in the front seat of a car going 50 miles per hour on the highway with a much older and larger man who had repeatedly and insistently expressed the desire to touch me. But for all he knew, as he handed me my bags, he was the one who had narrowly escaped. He was a man who would risk cruising another man, a young heterosexual one brimming with privilege, who could easily have reported in the city for harassment worse. What if he had learned what was really beneath my jeans? What if I really had been one of those volleyball playing frat boys? When I arrived in Michigan, I told the story to my girlfriend. She laughed and grabbed playfully at my crotch when I got to the part about no complaints. That's right, she said. <laughs> but we both knew there was nothing funny about it. Switching it up, in Kent D. Wolf's story, Escape from the Isolation of Midwestern Farm Life lies in a plane ticket for a semester abroad. But first, he must negotiate permission and withstand the disappointment of both parents. Here is Naomi Gordon Lobel reading July 1995. We have Kent in the hot seat. Um, so you're, you're board game. You're ready? You're board game game. Uh, your, board, your board game is called It's Only Natural. <laughs> how, how do we play It's Only Natural? What is the objective? <laughs> For organic farmers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we don't believe in pesticides or preservatives uh, um, or genetically modified foods, and so we go through a planning season without Monsanto um, <laughs> shutting down our operation. Great. Yes. <laughs> Not what that game is. <laughs> It's Only Natural is a fabric board game for lesbians that encourages strategy and throws in elements of chance. Space on the game board include, quote, attempt the world record for longest hug, and, quote, invited to speak at a school, tell it like it is. <laughs> That's how you play It's Only Natural. <laughs> Sounds fun, right? All right, have a seat. And we are now going to turn it over to Naomi. So this is July 1995, written by Kent D. Wolf and performed by Naomi Gordon Lobel. (laughs) 
1995. You gotta understand, son, the anus is a one-way shoot. That's just basic anatomy. My dad says to me from the driver's seat in between sips of old Milwaukee light. Next to him is my 27-year-old half-brother who has just outed me to my parents. I am 19 years old. You know, when I was in the Air Force, I could have been court-martialed for having anal intercourse with my wife, my brother says. And all I want to ask him is, why? When you found that magazine in my room, why didn't you come to me first? You knew what would happen. What would happen to me? Instead, I stay silent in the backseat of the family car, which sits parked on our overgrown lawn. We're not headed anywhere, and for that I feel grateful, as my dad is prone to driving drunk along the back roads that snake around our Illinois farm but I would gladly give him a lifetime's worth of beer to drive me away from here. The muggy stillness of a July night blankets the car, but from inside the house, my mother's voice tears through it. She has, for lack of a better word, snapped. Days earlier, she'd had major surgery on her crumbling spine and has been confined to bed. Now, she's shuffling back and forth in front of her rented hospital bed, <coughs> pulling at her hair, screaming. It is a wordless curse at God, at this pox on her family, at me. Earlier that afternoon, pulling into the driveway after a visit with a friend, I found her hobbling in circles in front of the garage, muttering to herself, eyes wild, one hand pressed gingerly to her lower back. I barely stepped out of the car when she grabbed my wrist, telling me that I was sick, would have to drop out of college, and be admitted to one of those pray away the gay reparative therapy programs. I was tempted to lie to her, to deny what months earlier I had come to accept, if only to preserve my freedom and my future. Is it true, she asked. Yes, I said, with a surprising amount of conviction. My mom and her anger are why I'm now confined to the car with my dad. It's the only peaceful place he can talk to me, and we're here to discuss whether or not they'll allow me to leave the farm. In less than three days, I'm scheduled to fly from Chicago to Buenos Aires for my junior year abroad. I tell myself to be quiet and let my dad talk, but I can't stop the panic creeping up my throat like bile. I have no car, no place of my own. What little money I have was earned earlier that summer from trimming rows of growing Christmas trees with a machete. Every few trees, I would have to stop and pry the blade from my shin guard when my arm slipped on the downswing. I'd worked clumsily, hastily, to pull further ahead of the guys who shouted faggot at me from the neighboring rows in between swings of their own blades. The promise of escape to another continent had kept me going. In the dark of the car, neither my dad nor my brother see the plane ticket pressed to my chest like a talisman. For me, there is nothing idyllic about farm life. It is lonely, for me at least, for I am different even if I haven't articulated it to those around me. The boys with the machetes know it. My mom knows it too, as the only question she asks every time she phones me at college is, do you have a girlfriend yet? If she'd asked about a potential boyfriend instead, the answer sadly would have been the same. <laughs> I am one of a handful of out students at my small liberal arts college, and my life on campus is almost as lonely as life on the farm. And just when my real life feels like it's finally set to begin, 
in a big city, in a faraway country, like a kind of fairy tale. It may all end up being taken away from me here in the car with my dad. In the car, my dad is in his element, loosened up by liquor and addressing a captive audience. <laughs> as far back as I can remember, my father has absolutely lived to tell stories. He's a yarn spinner, a slinger of anecdotes and random facts, an even folksier Garrison Keeler with a penchant for intentionally mispronouncing words for added folksiness. <laughs> Son, when I picture your future, all I see is a brick wall, he says. It's a sad life, that one. And let me tell you why. When I was a senior in high school, my pal Gail and I took a used car out for a test drive. Picture, I'm behind the wheel, cruising along, enjoying the breeze, the Everly Brothers on the radio, when all of a sudden, the salesman reaches over and grabs my you-know-what, and before I can pry his grubby mitt off me, my buddy Gail's springing up from the back seat like lightning, locks his arm around the guy's neck so hard he put near chokes to death. You see what kind of people these are, these perverts? <laughs> he looks for me in the rearview mirror, but it's too dark for him to see me. Still, I give him the slightest of nods. And you know what happened to that no good creep? Not long after, a fella out fishing for bluegill found his body floating face down in the canal. It's the town's one and only murder, and to this day, nobody knows who did it. A real tragedy, that one, he says with a shake of his head. My dad is not the aggressor in his tale, nor is he one to wish death upon anyone. But the apparent moral of his story unsettles me. Was death what the car salesman deserved? Is this the fate that awaits me to be preyed upon by older men? Or will I one day do the preying? I shift uncomfortably in my seat. That's the kind of guy you need to watch out for, son. They're everywhere, he says. Did I ever tell you about my time undercover? For over 20 years, my father has worked as an Illinois state trooper. He speaks of his job rarely, as most days he issues tickets to speeders and toll evaders. And all I know about his time as a detective was his inability to grow a convincing mustache thanks to a scar on his upper lip from a motorcycle accident when he was 16. Well, at the time, we didn't know it was John Wayne Gacy. But young <laughs> men were disappearing up by Chicago, and we were under pressure to find the guy behind it. For months, the sergeant had me hanging in the men's toilets at the rest stops off the tollway. I'd stand around for hours in those stinking stalls, waiting for guys to creep up on me so I could arrest them. Your old dad shouldn't even tell you some of the nasty things these perverts wanted to do to me. But I swear to you, son, one of them said to me, oh, I get sick just thinking about it. He said he was going to put his tongue in my asshole. Can you believe that? <laughs> his eyes look from mine again in the rearview mirror. <laughs> the message is clear. The gay lifestyle is one of violence and depravity of filthy toilets and filthy acts, of missing boys and shallow graves. That's what's waiting for you, my boy, and it scares me to death. And I haven't even mentioned AIDS. It's a death sentence. I mean, I can't see you making it to the age of 25. It breaks my heart. So now tell me, how can we let you go halfway around the world knowing all this, he says.
I set my plane ticket down next to me. I'm afraid the sweat from my hands will smear the ink and make the ticket useless. You'll just have to trust me, I guess. I tell you what, you're gonna make me a promise. A promise from a son to his dad, okay? Promise me that you won't try anything. You won't go to any bars. You won't congregate with homosexuals. Stay away from all that stuff and you can get on the plane. Do we have a deal? I don't spend a second mulling over his offer. Yes, Dad, we have a deal, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> With that, he tells me to head to bed, and I slip into the house as quietly as possible. My father, despite his disappointment and revulsion, is setting me free, but I still owe someone a pound of flesh. My mother carries with her an insurmountable trauma. How this came to be is her story to tell, not mine, but what I can tell you is that from this pain, she wounds just as deeply as she loves. Over the years, I have learned to keep my guard up, my heart closed, but even when I can see the blade coming, it always finds its mark. In the warm moments, when her love is the softest, most comforting thing, I tend to forgive her this volatility. But the words she burns me with the following morning will make a hole so deep in my heart it will never fully heal. I wake early, our rooster has made sure of it, but my sleep was a fitful one anyway, as I could hear my parents arguing through the night about my father's decision. When I turn over, I see her, my mother. I don't know how long she's been standing next to my bed, how long she's been waiting for me to open my eyes. When I woke up this morning, I thought to myself, everything's going to be all right, she says flatly. But you know what? It won't ever be. I hate you. In fact, I wish you had never been born. Her eyes are cold and empty. There is a hint of a smile on her face. Does she find this funny? No, she's wearing a smirk of satisfaction. One that says, now you hurt too. And with that, her job is done. She leaves the room and I wonder if I still have a mother. Two days later, I'm on a plane. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.